So what I'm trying to talk about today, or what I would like to bring up today, is the tendency for those of us who are practicing the Buddha Dharma uh, to act like and to practice like new practitioners. And when I say new practitioners, I don't mean practitioners that have been practicing for only a week or only six months or even only two years. But we act like a culture of new practitioners, which we are. The Buddha Dharma has only been recently introduced into our culture. And our culture is more determined by Judeo-Christian thought than it is by Eastern thought. And so many elements of our culture do not comfortably embrace the way the path is taught, including our language. Uh, and most especially, the way that we live, our lifestyle. We are in a culture that is materialistic. It is extremely competitive. And actually, the idea of competition and material, these two ideas both, are taught to us as virtues from childhood. And so we think of collecting things or of going somewhere. These are very pivotal ways of viewing our progress through life. And so that becomes for us on the path somewhat difficult. And we have to spend some time trying to translate. And I feel that one of the things that we are able to do fairly well here at the temple, at our temple here, and that I myself feel somewhat skilled in is translating what is, what, what is basically innately Eastern thought into a Western context or Western culture. And I think that I'm good at that because uh, that I was born an American. And I think that that's what is really helpful with, um, uh, if one has some understanding of the path. So our problem here as we face either beginning the path of Buddha Dharma or continuing on the path of Buddha Dharma is the sense that somehow the path has to become really married or bonded with the way that we utilize our mind and our perception. And this we have not really been able to do yet. Even if we've been practicing for some time, even if we are wearing the robes, even if we have a daily practice that we are extremely committed to, it tends to be the case that we don't actually bond or marry with the path in a way that is truly intimate truly lasting. We tend to, unfortunately, externalize the path. So we have to ask ourselves, what are the reasons for that and how does it manifest? Well, first of all, regarding the reasons for it, in our culture and the way that we think, we externalize everything. This is not unusual. Everything that we see is a road in front of us. Of course, this isn't only typical of our culture. It's typical in the way that human beings perceive things altogether. But particularly in this culture, we think of things that must be accomplished and things that must be collected. So we find ourselves facing something that is in front of us, a path that is in front of us. And although the Buddha Dharma the teaching of the Buddha Dharma is extraordinarily different from spiritual and esoteric philosophy as we understand it in this Judeo-Christian society. We are not able to make that transition. We practice Buddhism like Christians. Just a different, different guy up there. 
which is really not how Buddhism ought to be practiced at all. Actually, Buddhism, uh, there is much debate. Uh, there are many who feel that Buddhism is, is not, Buddhism is not a religion, that in fact it is a philosophy. There are, uh, there are those that say that Buddhism is a religion, but, is a, but it is a non-theistic Buddhism, uh, non-theistic religion. And there are others that say that that's not possible. You either have a theistic religion or it ain't a religion. So I don't know what to tell you about any of that. I'll leave that for the academics. We're going to go for the experiential. Actually, if we understand the source of our misunderstanding and how it is that we externalize the path, we can begin to repair the damage and begin to rethink and reassess. The great thing about us is that we can learn. We are that particular unusual kind of computer which can learn from its own programming, which can reassess and reevaluate. We are capable of that. To watch us in our lives, you'd never know it, but we are capable of learning. <laughs> so when we uh, begin to practice the path, we, if we consider the thoughts that I'm about to bring out, we may be able to reevaluate, reassess, and re-engage in a way that is deeper and more profound. Let's jump for a moment to a way of understanding what the path actually is. When we think of the path, once again, we think of something that is external, separate from us, something in front of us that we have to move on or attain toward. A different understanding of the path might be that the path is something that actually engages with what you might call three faces. But these three faces are, are very much like us. You know, you could say that each one of us has at least three faces. Each one of us has the face of anger or discontentment. Each one of us has the face of joy. Each one of us has the face of um, sort of balance or just contentment. There are many different faces that we have. Now, the path also has faces that when we truly study them, we can understand what the nature of the path actually is. You could say that the path exists as part of a three-part system. And if you were to think of the path itself in a true and more profound way than we normally think, you would understand that there is no way to tell where the path actually begins and where the path actually ends. We would understand that composing what we call the path are actually these three faces which are one, the ground or basis from which the path arises. Two, the path or movement itself, the display, if you will, of that source or fundamental nature from which the path arises. And then there is the fruit, which is the direct result of that fundamental nature, as well as the direct result of the activity of that fundamental nature. But these three things, the ground, the path, and the fruit or result, cannot be separated, not in any way, shape, manner, or form. The moment that we begin, begin to separate these three aspects, we lose touch with what the path actually is. We lose touch with 
an intuitive understanding as to how to actually practice the path and we experience a great deal of delusion concerning the path because that if we are if we separate ourselves from the understanding of the threefold face of the path of the the basis or ground the movement or path itself and the result uh, of the path and the result uh, we, we would, if we were to separate these three, we could not determine what a true path actually is. And so a terrible delusion would come. Without that, this understanding, anything that we do becomes a path. You know, any, any activity that we engage in becomes a method. That method connects something with something, or it wouldn't be a method. But still in all, on the path of Buddha Dharma, we have to remain connected with, again, the ground, the method, and the result. These, these three have to be considered as threefold. They cannot be separate in any way, shape, manner, or form. How is it that we can use this understanding to determine the validity of the path and to remove from ourselves the tendencies toward delusion? Well, first of all, there is the teaching that you have been given on a number of, of occasions about relating the seed and the fruit. There's that, that kind of good old-fashioned commonsensical wisdom that if you really want to have an apple tree in your orchard, you've got to plant an apple seed. That if you were to want an apple tree in your orchard and were to plant cabbages, it would simply not work. You would have cabbages in your orchard. If you were wishing for an, an apple tree, if you were wishing for some apples, and you were to plant asparagus, that's not going to work out really well for you unless you really determine that asparagus is your thing. I know it sounds like I'm being silly, and, and why is she belaboring this point? Well, the moment we get it, I'm going to stop nagging about it, because as yet, we haven't gotten this one, and it's really, really important. Regarding the Buddha Dharma, the Buddha Dharma is not a path or a method that arises in any common or ordinary way in the world. In other words, someone didn't get born at some time and simply compose a path. Um, a team of experts or technicians didn't get together and engineer a path. NASA didn't design this one. Uh, this path was not a dream or a vision that someone had about 20 years ago that remains unproven or insubstantial. The path actually, the, the path of Buddha Dharma as we know it, does not arise in the world at all in the sense that it only arises under the condition of the Buddha nature or supreme enlightenment actually appearing. It arises from the mind of enlightenment, from the Buddha nature. Lord Buddha did not begin to teach the path, although he had attained varying degrees of what you would call, I don't know, maybe cosmic consciousness or something like that, before he actually attained supreme enlightenment. He had, he had various degrees of consciousness that he could communicate, various qualities that he could teach to others, 
various teachings on compassion, bodhicitta, uh, uh, practicing meditation that he could have taught, but in fact he did not teach until Buddhahood actually came to him, until he, until he awakened into the primordial nature that was his true nature, or awakened to Buddhahood. And then at that time, he was able to display the path or method to the world. So the path or method actually came forth from his realization. It did not come forth from even one millisecond before his realization. But at the time that he achieved that precious awakening, it was after that that he was able to bring the path to the world. And so during the course of uh, Lord Buddha's life, he actually discovered that there were many different displays of consciousness, many different levels of attainment and attunement that one could, one could accomplish. And he did accomplish many of these before that ultimate moment. But it was that ultimate awakening that he actually presented to the world as the Buddha Dharma. And so the seed of the method that we practice is enlightenment the Buddha nature itself. It is not the human nature. If it were the human nature, he would have taught before that precious awakening. And that would have been something from the human capacity. But it was not until supreme realization that he began to teach the method, and he taught only that method which leads to supreme enlightenment. So the seed and the method are completely married and not separable. If you are practicing a method that did not arise from the mind of the Buddha, from supreme enlightenment, from that kind of enlightenment, and again, there are many levels of spiritual advancement, then the interesting fact is that you are not practicing a path that can also result in supreme enlightenment because the seed and the fruit have to match. Once again, an asparagus plant will not produce an apple. They simply have to match. It's one of those fundamental, commonsensical, two and two makes four kinds of realities that we like to conveniently leave out on a regular basis. Why do we do that? Is it because we have a particular shtick that we need to fulfill about what religion's all about? Is it preconceived notion? Uh, different kinds of conceptualization that we have. Well, yeah, there are elements of that. That's true. We do, uh, because we are, we are intellectual people, we have formed ideas that are difficult to change once they are formed. We have the habit of clinging to ideas almost in the posture that if our, heaven forbid, our ideas were to change, the result would be so mind-blowingly chaotic. Flexibility, of course, is an unheard of skill, but you know, if, our, if our ideas were to change, the result would be so incredibly mind-blowingly chaotic that surely we would die. I mean, we, we have this, this habit of wrapping ourselves around our ideas in a very firm way. That's certainly one reason why it is difficult for us to think logically about these issues, particularly about the path, but another Another reason why that is so difficult is that in every area of our lives, if you really examine us, we have very little familiarity with and habit 
geared toward really thinking something through from cause to result. We like to take these flying leaps at reality. You know, we, we like to take these, these great sort of plunges thinking, you know, I want that and I'm here, so jump! You know, it's, it's kind of that kind of thinking. Uh, just, 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 just jump, you know, and, and, and if that, well, jump again, <laughs> you know. And if that doesn't get, well, don't, but do, heaven forbid, do not stop and think what cause would produce that result. We don't have that habit, not whatsoever. Um, we spend a good deal, deal of our lives incapacitated in certain ways because we, because each one of us has a particular problem to deal with. Some of us may have confused mental states. Some of us may have really strange habitual tendencies that produce for us again and again and again unhappiness. You know, many of us engage in patterns that we just can't seem to shake. And they always produce for us these, these habits that make us unhappy. And when we make ourselves unhappy, we withdraw from that unhappiness and we whine, basically. And, um, <laughs> We blame the fates and we blame the people next to us. Take a good look at the person next to you. This is the person at fault for everything in your life. Adji, you can look past the one. To <laughs> so I mean, you know, absolutely. Whoever's sitting next to you, you can blame them for everything. We take these flying leaps at our lives without really thinking through any kind of cause and effect relationship. We, 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 we have been given definite teachings on what kind of virtue and what kind of activity produces the result of happiness. But we don't want to practice virtue. We want to take flying leaps. It's just what we do best. We're used to it and we don't want to change. And regarding the path, it's the same way. We see the path as being in front of us. It has certain characteristics. It has a certain kind of appeal in whatever way. And so we see ourselves as separate from that, and we take a flying leap in that general direction somehow without thinking out what is cause or what is original cause, what is the basis, what is the movement or the method, what is the result, and how to follow that through, how to really reason that through. We don't seem to be able to do that. We seem to like to take these flying leaps, and, and we also, oddly enough, expect that these dramatic, utterly unfounded and ungrounded flying leaps in themselves, because they are some kind of movement or some kind of dramatic, in themselves are going to be like some kind of manic dance that's going to make us happy, just themselves. So we spend most of our lives just thrashing around, you know, just flailing around through our lives. In most regards, we have no way to understand the relationship between cause and result. We simply don't have the habit. It's a particular kind of delusion that seems to go hand in glove with our human reality. So now when it comes time for us to really become intimate with and marry into the path, 
we're looking around for some way to do that, the difficulty is, is obvious. For many of us that have been practicing for some time, when we engage in the path, we will try to make the path its own satisfaction. Now, if we understood the basis for the path and what the fundamental underlying ground of the path actually is and what the result of practicing the path in a certain way will be, not because it's magic, not because, hey, the signs point in that direction, not because it's superstition, but because ground and result cannot be separated. We would begin to understand that, in fact, under those conditions, the path disappears. The path, as a separate entity, then doesn't exist. Not in the way we understand it. It becomes invisible. It becomes inseparable from our own primordial wisdom nature, from our own awakened, naturally awakened state, from our own Buddhahood, in its causative sort of, I don't know, in its seed form, I guess you'd have to say. And it becomes completely inseparable from the full-blown result of Buddhahood. Of actually awakening. It becomes completely inseparable. And if you understood the three faces as being completely inseparable, you would not be engaging in method thinking like the way that we do now, which is, um, okay, today I'm really going to get into my practice. So instead of doing an hour of practice, I'm going to do two hours. What kind of thinking is that? I mean, yeah, at some point you might have to decide how much time you have to put into it, but that's not what it's about. That's not going to make a bit of difference if, the, if that's the approach. And, and, you, and, you know, the kind of thinking that we have now also is, well, you know, I really have to, I've been sort of out of it with my practice, and so now I have to get back into my practice. Even that kind of thinking is diluted thinking. To get back into your practice mean that means, means that you walked away from something that is intimately connected, I mean, completely inseparable from that which is your nature. You can't walk away from that. No matter where you go, there it is. And so where does that thinking come into play? It's very strange thinking. It causes us to be incapable of living a truly sacred life. Now, living a truly sacred life does not become old. It does not become tiresome. It never becomes stagnant by definition. It re-establishes itself at every moment because you are, if you are living a sacred life, which is a life that is truly connected with meaning, purpose, with nature, cause, result, then each moment becomes almost like, well, forgive me for getting over, overly romantic, but becomes like, like a kiss, like love. Every moment is something that you have a sacred relationship with. 
because you move into the awareness that there is nothing that you can do that is separate from your own nature. And nothing that you can do, unless you will it to be so, and close your eyes and turn away, that therefore is separate from result, the result of awakening. But the need, in order to establish this truth as being real and re relevant in your life, is to understand the path as being inseparable from your nature. We run into all kinds of traps when we practice the Buddha Dharma. One of them is that we feel like we're doing somebody a favor when we practice. We feel like we're doing our teacher a favor. We feel like we're doing the people around us a favor. And our compassion becomes tainted with that. You know, we feel like we're doing everybody a favor by praying for the world. When we walk about and move and have our existence through the vehicle of our lives, within the vehicle of our lives, <coughs> excuse me, we also, you know, we adapt a posture which is very much like putting on clothing or putting on a false crown. Uh, definitely we put on an appearance as though it were not ours. We think of practicing the path as a constraint or something that we do that isn't really naturally part of us. And so the path eventually becomes like a burden to carry, something that isn't you that you have to pull with you. It that becomes too weighted, it becomes too heavy, it becomes unnatural. It becomes um, an issue in your life. Whereas if we understood the path to be something that we were not able to walk away from, so natural, so much a part of us as our own breath, in the same way that we live and that life is displayed as movement, breath, activity, and, and the result of that is that we live. That natural process of understanding ourselves to be that kind of creature makes it pretty easy for us to breathe, isn't it? I mean, if you understand the basis of your life and you understand cause and effect, you're not likely to say, oh God, I'm so tired of breathing all the time. I'm just really sick of it. I mean, it's really a pain. You have to do it from the moment you're born to the moment you die. It's just not fair. You know, and why does everybody have to do that? Well, you would never think like that, of course, because your breath, your movement is an expression of the fact that you live. Now, it is possible for the path to be the same kind of living reality to you. I know for myself, in my own practice, and I'm certainly not holding myself up as the best practitioner in the world, there are times when I don't have time to practice at all. And yet, I, don't, I, never, I have never for a moment felt separate from the path. I mean, that seems to me impossible.
it seems to me that my entire life is an expression of the path, and it is. It seems to me that everything that I know for sure is something that the Buddha brought to the world. About everything else, I don't know anything for sure. You know, I may know something about the nature of mind, but I really couldn't get you into D.C. I can't find the place. <laughs> you know, it's the truth. I need a driver. And yet, I wouldn't know how to take action, no matter what it looks like, that is separate from what I know as sacred. I wouldn't know how to remove myself from the path. The path to me is inborn, connected, married. Um, I'm, I'm convinced that there would be no reason for me to live if there were no path to be displayed. And I don't think I'd be here. So why is that? Is it because I'm such a great practitioner? No, I don't think so. I think that somehow, perhaps, who knows, maybe it has been my good fortune, as, as my teachers have said, to have practiced many, many lifetimes, and it becomes natural and habitual for me by this time. Perhaps that's what it is. But the one thing that I know for sure is that I don't see anything that is separate from the Buddha nature. I don't see that. So we, as practitioners who are trying and attempting to mature in our own spirituality have to learn how to do that in some regard, how to live a truly sacred life. There are many different ways to consider that thought. There are many different ways that we can practice it. I know that um, from the point of view of, for instance, uh, Native Americans, that with Native Americans, everything that they do uh, in a ceremonial way, they offer to the four directions, they offer to the spirits and powers associated with the transcendent and with earth. Everything first goes to, uh, everything first is offered to the creator. Everything is done in a ritualistic and ceremonial way so that it is in alignment with what we know to be our nature. So how does a Buddhist practice that kind of sacred life? Well, at least a, a large part of it and a good step forward would be to understand what it is that I'm trying to explain here. And that is that the path should never be viewed as a thing that is composed of ordinary elements as we know them. It should be understood as being inseparable from everything you seek, everything that is precious to you and will someday be even more precious as your understanding increases. Most importantly, the path cannot be and is not separate from that which is your primordial wisdom nature. The voice that is the path the method that is the path, the direction, the, the, the content of the path. This is all a miraculous display of Buddha nature. Each and every aspect of the path 
is a means by which one can develop or awaken to that natural innate potency that is your potency and that you cannot walk away from, that you cannot abandon or destroy, really. The path can only, res only bring about the result that is consistent with and the same as the seed or its essence. So we're looking at essence, we're looking at movement, and we're looking at result. Try to imagine how we see things ordinarily. When we are doing what seems like moving through linear time, isn't this the case where if something happens to you, let's say, well, let's think of some really dramatic event that happens to you. Let's say, I don't know, what happens? Let's say your car breaks down, okay? Let's say an event happens and your car breaks down. Well, normally, when that kind of thing happens, when the car breaks down, that's it. That's what happened. It's out there. The car broke down. It's out there. It's an out there kind of thing. And it's isolated. It has no connection with anything else. Did the car break down because you forgot to put oil in it? No, no. It just broke down. Did the car break down because you never get it a checkup or a tune-up? No, no, no. It just broke down. It just happened that way. Um, did the car stop because there's no gas in it? No, no. It's just stopped. It's that kind of thing. When we see events in our lives, we see them like that. They happen out there. Now, as time passes, often there are these connecting things that happen to the events in our lives. Maybe a year after the car broke down, several things might have happened. You might have learned something about how to take care of a car. Let's say your husband or wife yelled at you for not taking care of the car, and you learned because they yelled real, real loud. Or uh, let's say um, a year after the car broke down, a series of events happened in which you were challenged put in some overtime so that you can make some more money and so that you would get a new car. So a couple of years down the road, when you think about the day that car broke down, it's no longer an isolated situation. The car didn't just broke. You know, it didn't just happen. There is meaning and importance that is somehow connected with all of that. You can see a movement from even before the car broke down. Because by that time, you have enough distance from the chaos of your mind to be willing to look at things that you weren't looking at before. You see that the car broke down, but you also know by that time in hindsight, which is always 2020, as you know, that in fact you didn't take care of the car very well. But now you see this as a total learning process. It isn't just that the car broke and you're living with that horrible reality. You're not seeing this isolated, neurotic situation. You're seeing a trend. You're seeing a movement. You didn't know how to take care of the car. You didn't do such a good job. The car broke down. Certain events happened by which you became naturally empowered to get another car. But that natural empowerment only happened because your first car disappeared. It broke. So now, in retrospect, you're seeing this flow, this beautiful movement. Suddenly, on the wings of a dove, you can see this beautiful movement, which started with your incompetence, 
<laughs> and led to your empowerment. In retrospect, once again, you can see the wholeness of it. Well, see, doesn't that give you a clue as to how we think? Well, it should. It really should give you a clue as to how you think. We, we have this idea of, it, it's kind of an ignorance that plagues us. It's kind of short-sightedness. It's a kind of not being able to understand content or whole pictures or abstract conceptualizations or round things. I don't know how better to, to describe it. But we only see something right in front of us and it's this kind of like, you know, manic little posture we put ourselves in. There it is. Well, the path is like that also. From the point of view of Buddhahood, one can see the primordial basis, the ground, which is uncontrived, beginningless, endless, unfounded and perfectly complete Buddhahood, Buddha nature, Buddha nature, the primordial wisdom state. We see that. We see a dance or a movement which is very much like having the same relationship with the ground as the rays of the sun have with the sun. You can't really, where's the point where the sun ends and, and the rays be, you know, begin? There's no real way to say that. There's only a matter of opinion as to where one ends and the other begins. But there's no real way to say that. And so we understand that the brightness or the rays of the sun are the same reality as the sun itself. And in the same way, the Buddha Dharma is understood as being this radiance or display which is inseparable from the source. You can't have sunlight without the sun. It doesn't exist. And so they are married in the most intimate fashion. There's no separation. This is seen from the point of view of Buddhahood. We see the primordial wisdom state. We see display as being inseparable from the natural resting state. And we see this from the point of view of result, which is completely dependent on and based on the ground, primordial wisdom state. In other words, if we did not have this primordial wisdom state, which is Buddhahood, there could be no result of Buddhahood. How would you accomplish it? You couldn't build it out of sticks and stones. There would be no result. So from the point of view of Buddhahood, this is seen as a three-legged stool or, a, or a, something that has three faces or three facets that are completely inseparable from one another. Now, if we are to really understand that in a deep and profound way, the, walk, the, the idea of whether or not one should practice or how one should live, should one be spiritual today or not, um, should one approach this particular problem in a spiritual way or do we simply let ourselves get away with it? Um, the idea of becoming stagnant on the path where suddenly, where at one point you felt like you were practicing well and now you feel like practice is, I don't know, you're not quite getting it somehow. This kind of idea would not be possible 
if we didn't see the path as being something separate from us in, a, in, in, in such an essential way that it becomes something we either walk on or put on. If we were to understand something of, of, the, of our own primordial nature, if we were to understand that the method is not separate from the result, then the hunger that we feel that brings us to the path would also sustain us. Because there is a hunger that brings us to the path. There is a kind of, what is it, what is it, what is it? A moving towards something, a thing that makes you reach out. And it makes you consistently reach out throughout the course of your life. Whether you reach out to the path every time, that's another issue. But there is some kind of urging towards what we know is some sort of natural, opened, awakened state of wisdom and poise. A state that is free, perhaps, of some of the components of suffering. We know that there's something. We can feel it. There is a natural urge. And yet, even with all that urging and all that crying out in our hearts, which we all do, in some way or another, why is it that we are not able to sustain ourselves on the path? So here is the need. What I'm describing to you today is a very strong and powerful need. And that is, how can we have our understanding of our spiritual life be so natural, so connected, so married, with every primal impulse that we have towards spiritual growth. That really we move past the point of making a choice. See, that's where you want to go on the spiritual path. You want to get past the point of needing to make that choice again and again and again. Because so long as you have to re-choose and reaffirm your path, You're going somewhere that isn't you. You're doing something that is separate from, you feel is separate from your nature. You're doing something still that is unnatural. And so all these dilemmas come into play. Once again, who are we doing this favor for? Who are we impressing? Who's got the authority in this game? We become then impotent on the path. And we get to the point where we need to be inspired on a regular basis. Because when you're traveling a journey that is separate from you, inspiration is necessary. On the other hand, do you need to be inspired to continue living, generally speaking? Do you need to be inspired to take your next breath? It's true that sometimes we can fall into a confusion that is so thick and so deep that we don't even understand whether we want to live anymore. That, that, that happens. There is history of that. As you know, there are people that commit suicide. But generally speaking, most of us understand intuitively that our life itself is simply a display of our nature. 
and on some level, we're beginning to understand that in order to continue living, we've got to engage in the method of breathing and moving through our lives. If we could only do that with the path, if we could only do that with Dharma, if it could be seen as natural for us and inseparable from us as our own breath, then practicing the Dharma would be much more potent, much more natural for us, much easier. Not in the way that you'd, you'd practice it in a schlocky way, or you would practice it without really caring how well you do. It's not like that. But easy in the sense that the issue of whether or whether not is solved. It becomes as natural as scratching an itch, or as natural as the intuitive knowledge that when you want to get out of bed in the morning, you've got to swing your legs over the edge. It's that kind of thing. It's such a natural movement. I mean, really, swinging your legs over the edge of the bed does not become the hardship that it could be if you think about the fact that the next thing you're going to experience is your first potty break in the morning. So you're out of that bed pretty easily because it's a natural part of the flow of your life. But that's not how we practice Dharma. We practice Dharma like it's a big issue, something we have to do that is not us, a girdle we have to put on, a thing we have to suffer through, uh, a ritual that we have to impress somebody with, something we have to set aside time for. And ultimately, we lose touch with and have no sense of what it actually is to live a spiritual life, to live in spirit, to live a sacred life. In fact, what if it were possible to live in such a sacred way that instead of thinking of ourselves as separate human beings who want to go there and get that, which is kind of how we think of ourselves, you know? We're always so goal-oriented, so linear in, our, in the way that we act. Supposing we were able to see everything around us, everything in the world, as the same as us, a display of an underlying primordial natural state that all things are a display of a fundamentally empty and yet full primordial nature that everything that you see is not separate from Buddhahood supposing that instead of clinging to what we see and, and and putting ourselves in the posture of acceptance or rejection or uh, acceptance or rejection of what we see like or dislike or in the case of meeting up with a situation hope and fear the hope that it'll work out well and someone will love you you know or the fear that it won't and no one will instead of approaching it with that kind of idea which in the end wears us out and does us in supposing we could live a truly sacred life supposing when we see a tree, when we see a person, 
when we see something beautiful, when we see something that's not so beautiful. Supposing we were to, in some quiet, subtle way, you don't have to make a big deal about it. You don't even have to roll your eyes up towards heaven. You don't have to, to make any kind of hokey spiritual posture, whatever. <laughs> Supposing we were simply to, in a quiet way, know that this too is a display of the Buddha nature. Supposing when we see something that delights our eyes, we would think of it in a more sacred way as something that can be offered to the Buddhas and Bodhisattvas for the sake of sentient beings, rather than clinging, rather than grasping, supposing everything could be offered. Supposing that every experience that happened to us could be offered, whether we like it. Supposing we could develop a sense of everything being sacred, holy, precious, having its own weight and depth and taste, and that each experience on its essential level can be offered. Supposing that we grew in the awareness that every single thing that occurs and every single thing that we see, feel, touch, and taste within the content of our lives is inseparable from this fundamental spiritual reality that is both our beginning, our ground or basis, and our ultimate goal, ultimate result. Supposing we could really practice deeply in that way. Once you get past the point that that is just a thing that you do, once it becomes past the point of being an effort, once you really begin to awaken to the interconnectedness and sacredness of everything, and within the mind there becomes kind of a simplicity that is the result of such thought. No sense planning out how you're going to get everything when you're really in the posture of making offering for the sake of sentient beings. Once the joy of that begins to catch hold, once you just begin to move into a different flavor of seeing everything not as a materialistic, materialistic external, attainable thing, but more as a display of everything you long for. And you begin to move into the understanding that it's not the display itself that is the thing that you want but the underlying, joyful, loving, spiritual reality that is, in fact, the essence we all long for. In every religion, every major religion in the world, there is something about approaching it with the eyes of a child. Every religion has a different way of explaining that. But there is a simplicity and naturalness that if one can engage on that, on their spiritual path, is sustaining, is joyful, is natural, and gives us the means by which we will not separate ourselves from the path and have times when we feel that we are very spiritual and times when we feel that we have other things to do.
And in that way, if we begin to practice the path in that way, it is much simple, simply our lives. It is simply, indescribably, so much us, so inseparable that in the same way that you cannot stop breathing and continue to move and have your being, neither could you even consider not having one spiritual path be the most integral, most core, most central, nourishing, and profound element within your life. And so you become empowered. I'll tell you something about myself which may sound odd, being as though I'm sitting on this throne in the middle of this whole Buddhist mandala here. <coughs> I'm not a very religious person. <coughs> Isn't that a kicker? <laughs> it's the bane of my life that I am responsible for this religion as it appears here in the West. I'm not joking with you. I'm serious. I am not a religious person. I do not like spiritual dogma. I do not like religion as I see it practiced. I wish that I had a more comfortable seat. <laughs> but I have connection with this particular method. And so that's the display, the form that it takes. But the underlying reality, the thing that cooks for me, the thing that wrenches my heart, that keeps me going, that makes everything about my life without choice, free of the burden of choosing, is that I know no other way to live other than to see my life as an expression of my nature. And if you, I've watched myself throughout the course of my life, I have made choices that are so difficult, but they were never about the spiritual. I have moved on and I have left things and I have walked into things and I have done all kinds of stuff. But when it comes to the spiritual unfolding in my life, there's never been a choice about that. And in any event in my life, if I had to choose continuing on with the expression of my nature, this spiritual play that is unfolding here, or engaging in some ordinary activity which would not facilitate that sacred life, there has never been a choice. I will always choose the sacred. And it's not that I'm patting myself on the back. It's just the way it is. It's always been that way. I never have chosen. I never have chosen. And I think it's because I'm not religious. I don't see religion as separate from me. I think it's because I'm not so dogmatic. I don't see dogma as being something I have to pick up and carry around. I see my life as being innately spiritual, and I see that there is no other way for me. I wouldn't know how to express myself any other way. And so I find that for each one of you, I make the same recommendation that you each in your own way find a way to experience that kind of intimacy with your spiritual life. To realize that you're not doing anything or anybody a favor. You are simply expressing what is true. To try to find a way to understand that the, 
that the ground or basis and the movement or method and the fruit or result are simply three faces of the same reality and that reality is you. There is nothing you're doing here that's strange or exotic or unusual. You are expressing your nature. What else would you do? Not express your nature? But now each one of us has to find a way to really get that for themselves, to really marry with that. And that's your challenge, isn't it? Haven't you, as you move towards, well, as you've matured throughout the course of your life, as an older person or middle-aged person or however old you are, haven't you looked back at earlier times in your life and realized that you didn't know how to really engage, that you were kind of absent or there's a certain kind of, I don't know, absenteeism that we practice with less maturity in our lives? I mean, do you remember what it was like to be, say, anywhere from 15 to, I don't know, 18, right around there? You know, you haven't yet grown a brain. You have these tiny little brain bud cells. And, you know, there isn't even enough there to anchor the eyes from going around like this you know, at that point. And later on, you realize that, 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 you know, with maturity, there's a certain, whoa, I'm in my life kind of thing that happens. And later on, spiritually, it's even more profound. I mean, that reality is even more profound on a spiritual level. When you're a young practitioner, you realize that in some way that was somewhat unconscious, you were simply kind of trying to do what the Lama tells you and trying to do what the Buddha says, and you were, you know, kind of just doing stuff. But then perhaps later on, as you begin to mature on the path, you begin to realize that there is something here that is, is like It's kind of like the uh, amplification of your own voice or, you know, the rays of your own sun or some movement that is a natural display of your own nature. You realize that there is a marriedness or a connectedness about the way that you live. You begin to move into the maturity of that. On the path for us that is really necessary at this point, truly necessary. It requires that each one of us take responsibility in an individual way, not relying on the structure of the temple for this one to come to you, not relying on the uh, capacity of the, te of the teacher to empower, deepen, and mature our minds, ripen our minds, not relying on uh, the sangha to support you and, you know, and, and give you that, um, I don't know, shot in the arm that we need all the time. But each of us individually in some way, in the same way that you do when it comes time for you to marry on an ordinary level, in some way you find what in you connects with that. You really begin to understand the union of this begin to find how it is that you are a spiritual being and how it is that the path has appeared. You begin to take responsibility for this connection, for this marriedness. 
And it is not about vows and commitments to something outside. It's about walking in a sacred life as a person fully endowed with the natural capacity, the method, and the potency of result in order to attain Buddhahood. So ask yourself again and again, what's the goal here? If, like me, you are more interested in expressing your fundamental, uncontrived, primordial nature, which is free of discrimination, free of that which is complete and that which has just begun, and a joyful, symphonic, musical way with wings. If you are more interested in doing that, in giving flight to what is precious, than in following a dogma or a religion and playing church, then you are going to be an excellent practitioner. If, on the other hand, you're interested in playing church and you have a time clock for this and uh, it's just a thing that you want to do and it's part of your life, and that will be the result. If you practice religion only to make your life different, then you will have a different life. But if you practice wisdom and bodhicitta in order to awaken, if you recognize everything as inseparable from you, if you are able to move into the posture of moving through the sacred as that which you are, as something precious, then I think you've got a shot at it. But that's going to take you working at it. You've really got to determine this for yourself. You have to build the marriage inside of you. Don't make the mistake that we make in ordinary marriages, waiting for the romance, hoping that the path will somehow woo you so that you can feel good about the path. It's not going to work. It's a lot deeper than that. So what I'm suggesting is that you really take this into your heart, really consider this, turn the page on a new kind of life. Today, why not? What's wrong with today? It's almost 1240. You could have this in gear by 1 o'clock. <laughs> Supposing you never were to take another bite of food into your mouth without offering the nourishment of that for the liberation and salvation of all sentient beings and giving thanks and realizing the divine, precious, inseparable nature of that food. Supposing taste for you became more like communion than yum-yum. Just think about that. 
supposing love and friendship became for you a holy sacrament rather than a way to fill your time. Supposing the spiritual life became for you an expression of something that exists and fills your heart rather than something that you're doing in order to look a certain way. You know you want this. You know you want to feel it to the depth of your heart. Why won't you be your own friend, your own best friend? Take yourself by the hand and give birth to a truly spiritual life. I don't care if you call it Buddhism. I do care that you practice compassion and bodhicitta. I do care that you awaken to the primordial wisdom nature. I do care that you begin to understand the sublime nature and emptiness of self and all phenomena. This I care about very much, but what you call it is up to you. Call it love. I like that one. But it's about really going for it, you know? Really taking it in as though it's yours. <coughs> Bonding with it. Practicing the path the way we practice is kind of like having a baby and putting it up for adoption and checking in on it every little while. And you expect to have the same kind of bonding and connection with that that you do with a child that you just you nursed with your own body and gave your own milk to and, and formed that kind of unbreakable connection with. What a difference. So don't make spirituality in your life the bastard child. Let it be your life. Let you be that. And of course you are. You are the ground or the basis, the primordial wisdom nature. You are the movement and display, which is also called method. And you are the result. And it only seems like we're on the path now because it seems like we are traveling toward the result. But in fact, nothing is going anywhere. You are not moving. Nothing is far away from you. And there is nothing to uncover or to build or to establish. It is simply the precious awakening. And to truly live a spiritual life, you must understand that this is your nature. So I'm asking you to transform your life into the sacred, the sacrament, the beauty that you long for as though it were an external thing. And I'm asking you to do it by 1 o'clock. <laughs> the reason why I'm naming this time is because it's so simple. It's just as simple as what you're doing now. In fact, it's much more simple. Because what you're doing now is feeling separate from the source, separate from your path, neurotic and needy. And by one o'clock you could have that all fixed. <laughs>